Welcome to the It's All Political podcast, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast for all things politics. My name is Tal Copen. I'm the Washington correspondent and senior political writer here at the Chronicle, and I'm filling in for my friend and colleague Joe Garofoli, who is on a well-deserved vacation. On today's episode, I bring you my conversation with Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents Torrance in Los Angeles County down in Southern California. And the congressman has made a bit of a name for himself as a very vocal uh, member on social media, also a frequent president on cable TV news, who is very critical of President Trump and has been very outspoken against this administration, many of its policies and many of its actions. And I spoke with him in a conversation about how he came to that role, but also how he originated as a computer science major, or as he puts it, a reformed computer science major who came to Congress to make a difference on cybersecurity. And you know, make sure to stay all the way to the end after this break so you can hear about who he's rooting for on Game of Thrones. We're here on Capitol Hill with Congressman Ted Lieu from Torrance. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Super excited to be on this podcast. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So, you know, just just as a way of sort of introduction to our, our audience who, who may have seen you on cable television once or twice, perhaps, uh, this is your third term in Congress. Is that correct? It is. I'm in my third term, fifth year. And you, you are sort of well known these days for, uh, I think, Nancy Pelosi credits you with being an excellent communicator. Um, you're certainly, you know, sort of out there talking about you're on the Judiciary Committee. You're talking a lot about the Mueller investigation, that kind of stuff. But you're actually a computer science uh, major by original training. Is that right? Uh, that's almost correct. I'm a recovering computer science major. <laughs> recovering computer science. And so, you know, how did someone from that original background end up where you are right now? Sure. I didn't set out to resist the president. Uh, after the presidential elections in 2016, I, I wrote a public statement that said something like, you know, one of the great things about America is our peaceful transfer of power. We're an exceptional nation. It's one reason I served an active duty in the military. And Donald Trump won the Electoral College. We should give him a chance to govern. A few months later, I concluded I was wrong. <laughs> and it was because uh, Trump was systematically attacking the institutions of our democracy. Mm -hmm. He was going after the First Amendment and the free press, going after the legitimacy of the judiciary, suppressing internal dissent, and then lying at a rate I've never seen a human being lie. And to me, that takes us down the road to authoritarianism, and that's a danger to the republic. And I decided I'm just going to not normalize what should not be normalized. And you know, like I mentioned, you are you do get a lot of um, opportunities to interview on on national TV. You also have a very active uh, social media presence. Do you tweet yourself, by the way? Uh, I have uh, two accounts. Okay. I have a very classy and polished office account. Okay. And then there's mine. And, and so, yes, I, I write my own tweets. And that's you. So, you know, the American public, if they see a tweet coming from that account, that, that's you. Yes. So uh, at Rep Ted Lou is my office account. Just at Ted Lou is my account. Uh, that's not, you know, that's not entirely common, I think, members of Congress. I, I think it's becoming more common. But the notion that you sort of have this this venue to sort of speak directly to the American public, it's a bit sort of, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it's sort of a new wave. So how did you come around to the idea of sort of using Twitter as that kind of medium? 
so I had actually uh, three years ago a number of staff interventions uh, when I started <laughs> doing this, uh, but I just decided that if Donald Trump was going to say 27 crazy and misleading things uh, a week, I'm going to try to point out that he said 27 crazy and misleading things and to not allow him to get away with it. I also realized that there's a lot of downtime just in general in human life while you're you know waiting at a checkout line at the grocery store or you're waiting at an airport or you're just waiting around and I will sometimes use that time uh, to tweet. <laughs> and it's also a way for me to communicate directly with American people and to get responses back directly. Mm -hmm. So I have sometimes changed my positions based on comments I read on Twitter uh, in response to what I say. Sometimes I'll ask people what they think on Twitter and Facebook, and it's a way for me to learn as well. Do any particular examples come to mind of those instances? Uh, a, a number of times um, I've been fact-checked, and <laughs> that's always helpful to know uh, that I'll say something that was not uh, actually accurate or correct. So, uh, for example, one time I said um, that the House impeached Nixon. That's not true. Actually, it was the Judiciary Committee that passed out articles of impeachment before the House could vote, Nixon resigned. Yeah. I have found that Twitter is very good at letting you know when you've screwed something up. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, I, you know, Nancy Pelosi refers to you as a great communicator. I think I've heard others of your colleagues do so as well. Is that something you sort of practiced? Is it just natural to you? I mean, how did you become sort of such a vocal member of Congress? Uh, so it's all based on anger. Um, <laughs> but then I'll you know, count to 20 before I say something or write a tweet. I've also learned to speak in 45-second increments, mm -hmm. which on television is important. Uh, but I just decided that I'm going to try to point out everything that is wrong with what's happening in the White House with what's happening with Republicans. And I'm just not going to let them get away with it. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what I'm trying to do. At the same time, as a member of Congress, we're also trying to push affirmative legislation, uh, such as protecting health care and the rights of people who have pre-existing conditions, making sure we get infrastructure done, mm -hmm. and making sure that we protect voting rights, uh, equality uh, for uh, the LGBT community. So. I want to be able to do both, hold the Trump administration and Republicans accountable, and then talk about what Democrats are pushing on an affirmative basis to move the American family forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, I think it's becoming more the norm for Democrats to be, you know, very vocal on social media. What do you make of some of the freshman class who have joined the fray, so to speak, and jumped right in? The freshman class is awesome. And uh, there are so many members with incredible backgrounds. Uh, we have uh, for example, uh, Tom Malinowski, who was a colleague of mine on the Foreign Affairs Committee, I remember we had a hearing, and one of the witnesses was uh, trying to say something about the Obama administration's State Department. And then when it came to his turn to question her, he basically set the record straight by opening with the line that I ran that office. Yeah. And then he explained why she was wrong. And you have uh, other uh, members of Congress uh, like uh, Abigail Spanberger, who was in the CIA. Uh, you have uh, Lisa Slotkin, who was uh, uh, Assistant Secretary in the Department of Defense. Uh, you have people with just incredible, amazing backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So I want to, speaking of backgrounds, I want to sort of go back in time in yours, because like I said, you you have a computer science degree. You also have a law degree. Uh, you are still in, in the um, Air Force Reserves. Is that right? 
Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you have a long career in the Air Force Reserves. You also have a long career in public service and in California, uh, JAG and in the Air Force is sort of how you got. So how did you sort of come to the law? And, you know, at the same time, I remember when you came here in 2014, I was covering cybersecurity you know, you sort of started out, that was going to be your path, right? You were going to be this, you know, literate cyber sort of lawmaker. Uh, So we still absolutely need to work on cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And it really is distressing that one of the first things John Bolton did was eliminate uh, the main cybersecurity position uh, in the National Security Agency. I don't know why he did that, uh, but we clearly have to increase cybersecurity because of what the Russians did and uh, 2016, what they're going to do again in 2020. Uh, but we also have a president that uh, is, I think, really taking the country down a wrong path. And so the number of issues I talk about has expanded and uh, the administration provides a lot of material to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, as I mentioned, I was covering cybersecurity right around that time. And, and I remember it sort of felt like a really hard issue to get the American people interested in. You know, there were sort of credit card breaches, which was what came to mind when people thought of cybersecurity. But everyone felt it was important, and yet it sort of felt very difficult as a salient public message. And it feels like that's changed. Do you Have you noticed a change even among your colleagues in terms of their interest in the issue? We've definitely noticed a huge shift in both public opinion as well as uh, the interest of members of Congress after the 2016 elections uh, because we were hacked by a foreign power. The Mueller report makes it very clear that the Russians engaged in a systematic and successful effort to influence our elections. And part of it was through uh, their use of cyber weapons. And we just need to be much better prepared heading into 2020. I found it incredibly distressing, uh, by the way, that former Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen wanted to bring this up with the president, uh, but Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney prevented her from doing so because he didn't want to make the president upset. So what are some of the things you would still like to see Congress do on that front going forward? Oh, in terms of cybersecurity? I think we first all need uh, a cybersecurity cabinet level position. Mm -hmm. Right now, if you look at executive branch cybersecurity is all over the place. You've got the Office of Management and Budget that has a portion of cybersecurity. You've got the Department of Homeland Security that has mm-hmm. a portion. And then you've got uh, the White House that has a portion, and no one really quite knows uh, what's happening. And it's not just a Trump administration. Uh, the Obama administration had this same problem. So I'm a co-author of Representative Jim Lagerman's bill that centralizes cybersecurity into basically one focal point. And I think we need to do that. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other issues that you're working on that maybe don't get as much visibility because it's sort of all Mueller all the time, it seems? Right. No, thanks for asking that question. <laughs> so uh, every term I've authored the Climate Solutions Act, which is one of the most aggressive bills in Congress to tackle climate change. Uh, one of the best things I ever did in my entire career was I was a co-author of California's landmark Global Warming Solutions Act, known as AB 32. Uh, I was in a state assembly at the time. And I think the reason that California's climate change laws worked well is we didn't go out and say, hey, here is 2,251 things we want you to do on climate change. Instead, we set goals and then we gave an agency immense power to take us there. Uh, So in California, we set a goal of going to 
pre-1990 emissions in terms of greenhouse gases by 2020. So my bill, the Climate Solutions Act in Congress, is a similar model. It says that by 2035, we're going to go to 100% renewable energy. By 2050, we're going to go to 80% reduction in all greenhouse gases. And then we're going to give the Department of Energy and the EPA the power to take us there. So what do you make of the the Green New Deal, both both in terms of what it is, but also in terms of it being the sort of new talking point that's been brought here yeah. by the energetic freshman class. Uh, I'm a co-author of Green New Deal. I think it's fantastic, their energy and activism uh, that it has sparked. Uh, at the same time, we have to recognize it for what it is. It's a resolution. Mm-hmm. It has no force of law. If it were to pass tomorrow, nothing would happen. What you would actually need are bills like my Climate Solutions Act, Mm -hmm. uh, which would have to force a law if it became law to actually implement parts of the Green New Deal. Uh, So I think people need to be talking uh, both about climate change and Green New Deal, but also about actual legislation that would have the force of law behind it. And have you had conversations with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and and some of the folks who sort of are really pushing for the Green New Deal about that and about those sort of you know, existing pieces of legislation? Uh, So I've talked to her about the Green New Deal and our office has sent her office uh, my climate change legislation. We're also going to do something called regular order, Mm -hmm. which Leader Pelosi, actually Speaker Pelosi, (laughs) uh, committed to, which is we're going to run our bills through committees and call in witnesses, put them under oath, uh, have experts, have both Democrats, Republicans ask questions, uh, Mm -hmm. get documents, and we're going to make uh, the legislation uh, as inclusive as we can and to do it right instead of what Republicans did last term, which is jam things through uh, without a lot uh, of oversight, without a lot of eyes looking at it. And you mentioned, you know, that that bill was sort of informed by the experience in California. California certainly has a lot of influence right now in terms of, you know, San Francisco's own Nancy Pelosi and the speaker and even Kevin McCarthy is in, you know, the minority leader position. What are some of the ways you see California lawmakers here in Washington having a real impact on the trajectory? I actually don't think Kevin McCarthy helped California at all. He was one of the champions uh, of basically uh, getting rid of this SALT tax deduction, which really whacked uh, Californians. And by putting a limit on the SALT deduction, it really, in fact, raised taxes on millions of Californians uh, up and down the state. I think that's one reason um, Kevin McCarthy's Republican California delegation got cut in half Mm -hmm. last November from 14 members to now seven. So out of 53 members of California delegation, only seven are Republicans. And I think that's in large part because Kevin McCarthy has not been fighting for the interests of California in any way whatsoever. He's actually been hurting California. What about on the Democratic side? What are some of the you know ways that California lawmakers are having an impact up here? So one way is we're fighting for disaster assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my own district, we've had uh, wildfires. There's been wildfires in Northern California. And so we've been working with other California delegation members for increases in federal funding. Uh, One of the good things uh, that I've learned and others have learned is that FEMA is generally uh, nonpartisan and most legislators are nonpartisan. So when it comes to disasters, uh, we support disaster victims. And whether disaster is in California uh, or in Iowa or in Texas, we're going to try to help those disaster victims. Yeah, but you know, I've been covering this quite a bit, and and this the 
this bill that, that would give billions of dollars in relief to not just California, but, you know, farmers in Georgia and the Carolinas that are that are really hurt by this. It's still stuck on this Puerto Rico you know, debate. Do you see a way out of this stalemate? I think it's going to eventually happen. Uh, and, and you're right. It is uh, stuck right now. But we have agreement on 95 percent of the bill. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think legislators on both sides are trying to figure out uh, the Puerto Rico part of it. But for uh, much of the rest of the bill, there is agreement. And, and you know, for our readers, the the dis- the problem is that the White House doesn't want to give more money to Puerto Rico outside of six hundred million for their food stamp program. But Democrats and, and certainly in the House, they say they will not move forward without it. Correct. When Donald Trump went to Puerto Rico and he threw paper towels at their folks, turns out that that was actually not enough assistance. Uh, <laughs> Puerto Rico really got whacked incredibly hard. And we uh, really need to do a lot more to help uh, the victims in Puerto Rico, who, by the way, many people may not know, uh, they're U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are Americans uh, that we need to help. You know, one other thing that you've sort of gotten some attention for is in hearings lately, you've been you've actually been playing audio on your phone. So you you actually used some San uh, San Francisco Chronicle story for one of them uh, about an a immigrant child who was sort of caught up in this unfortunate situation, having been separated from one parent and another parent trying to get them. Uh, you also sort of played uh, Candace Owens' own words back to her. What inspired you to sort of take that route? And did you expect it to go as viral as it did? I definitely didn't expect it to go as viral as it did. I um, actually found it uh, really illuminating uh, because I was just basically playing back a person's words back to them. And to just see how people reacted to that, even though this was not a new speech it had been out there in the Internet for quite a while, mm-hmm. I simply played it in the hearing. And it sort of shows that these congressional hearings are watched by a lot of people mm-hmm. more than I thought. And it's not just C-SPAN viewers anymore. So <laughs> people are paying attention. And that's actually uh, a good thing for democracy. Uh, so, for example, I can tell you that uh, Law students uh, in my time, we had no idea what the emoluments clause was. No one ever taught that to us. And now half America knows what the emoluments clause is in the Constitution. So there is this massive amount of civic education that's happening. More people are being registered to vote. More young people are voting. And that is all a good thing in the long run for a democracy. Has has that lesson... So is, do you have you taken anything from that in terms of how you're approaching hearings? And especially, you know, now that the House Democratic investigations seem to be, you know, really ramping up. Uh, so so I'm also a, a former prosecutor. I've always realized it's always effective to use someone's own words, uh, whether you play that in a video or you simply uh, show a document of it or you recite it back to them. Um, I remember when I was questioning Attorney General Sessions uh, last term. Uh, I had his own words where he said something very different uh, in a Senate committee compared to what he was telling us in the Judiciary Committee versus what he actually uh, wrote down in the security uh, application for security clearance. So I've always tried to see if I can actually use someone's prior statements uh, to make a point about them. So so future witnesses, be warned. <laughs> yes. And well, what else is interesting is you do, as you point out, have this amazing technology now. There's more computing power in your cell phone uh, than in 
the computers uh, that were responsible for the moon landing. So you have this huge amount of information at your fingertips and you can access it. And so sometimes I'll be in a hearing and a witness will say something that I think is just incorrect or wrong, or it'll, it'll bring up another point in my mind and I will simply go on my phone and I'm able to verify it very quickly. Uh, and then one day I decided, hey, I'm just gonna play this on the phone and, and, and see what happens. And what happens is it <laughs> created a viral moment. <laughs> yes, it was. It just it went viral. It wasn't something I expected. Yeah. So I'll take you out of here on this. What's what's a fun fact about Ted Lieu? What's something that people at home might not know about you, having watched you on TV and from afar? Oh, um, a fun fact about me. Um, well, I do like traveling, but now that I've traveled so much between L.A. and D.C., I, <laughs> I uh, tend to like traveling uh, somewhat less. Uh, but I do really enjoy reading science fiction. Mm, what's um, some of your favorites? Uh, I love the Dune series. Okay. Um, I liked uh, Ender's Game. One of my favorites. I uh, currently love Game of Thrones, although that's sort of more, more fantasy. Yeah. Um, I wanted, actually, uh, a White Walker to uh, get on the Iron Throne, <laughs> uh, but that's not going to happen anymore. You were rooting for the bad guys? <laughs> I uh, I can be very dark sometimes. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's that's that. We'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much for your time and for joining uh, us on It's All Political. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tal Copen, the San Francisco Chronicle's Washington correspondent. Uh, we appreciate your listening. Also, please subscribe. You can download on a podcast on your favorite method of downloading podcasts. And you can also subscribe to the newspaper and our online content at sfchronicle.com. You can follow me on Twitter at at Tal Copen or email me at tall.copen at sfchronicle.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli, J-O-E-G-A-R-O-F-O-L-I, or you can email me at jgarofoli at sfchronicle.com. Support It's All Political! and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.